0: To long home for here, I won't be back
1: in a year, cause all the fallen leaves, the birds, the breeze, capture me again,
0: and all the lies you tell someone else, sure could use
1: a friend. And welcome back to another episode of Into the Wilderness, brought to you by Sea Will Canada. I'm your host, Dan Lonergan. Uh, as always, you know where to find the show, Apple, Spotify, Anchor google wherever you get your podcast, check it out search it on the World Wide web uh, into the wilderness seewell canada you'll find it you'll find one that works for you uh our website SeawellCanada.ca, for all the updated events and news uh that's coming out in the world of will and also you'll notice save the date uh, it's official our conference is coming back in person uh real interactions between human beings, June 18th to the 21st, 2023, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, we're currently accepting proposals. So if you're in the will space and you're really keen to share what it is you're doing, check it out. You can submit it. Um, all that info, including how to become a sponsor, if uh, if you're from industry looking to get the, the helping support everything in the world of will, check it out. www.seawillconference.ca. Registration will open soon. Uh, not quite yet, but all that good stuff. SeaWorldConference.ca. A lot of times, I've talked about what I used to do in the world of work-integrated learning on this show, and and that was primarily in the project space, community projects, service learning uh, type of work-integrated learning at uh, Brock University, Goodman School of Business. I've gone into extensive details about all of that, <laughs> what we, what I used to do, um, and a lot of times those projects would involve nonprofit organizations. Just A, because Niagara, the Niagara region, Niagara, Southern Ontario, ripe with nonprofit organizations, um, well connected in terms of our our community circles with Brock. And uh it just kinda of, it lended itself quite well to the work that we were doing with students. And there was times where, you know, the students, you, you'd kind of notice that they, would, they, w- they wouldn't they would necessarily struggle with the nature of the organization itself. Okay, they understood what the purpose and the, the mission of that organization was. But a lot of times, I think it was the broader concept of a nonprofit organization that maybe they weren't the most well-equipped to fully understand day one of that project, or if they'd never been exposed to working with a nonprofit before. So a lot of time, it was bringing them along that path of understanding Yes, just because it's called a nonprofit doesn't mean there's no revenue and money that flows through the door. They still have to keep the lights on and there is a purpose behind what they do. They may just not have the retained earnings and the shareholders that a publicly traded company would have. So getting business students to change their mindset may have been a longer journey than a student in humanities or in the arts who may have been exposed to this a little bit more. So how, I've always thought, you know, how do we better prepare students for that world? How do we better prepare them to engage with nonprofit organizations? And how do nonprofit organizations fit in the world of work integrated learning when you look at different types of wills, whether it's co-op or internships or projects and everything that goes along with it. And I think there's a lot of complexities that maybe are behind the scenes a little bit. They don't jump out initially, or when you look at it on paper, and my guest today uh, has actually gone quite in depth in that area and is well versed um, in all things nonprofit organization and work integrated learning. She is currently the acting dean of access and continuing education at the College of New Caledonia, which is all the way up in Prince George, British Columbia. Uh, she was previously the director of career and experiential learning at the University of Toronto. Big geographical change between the two of those. Uh, And she also has a freshly minted PhD uh, with her dissertation, which was focused on exploring will in the nonprofit sector in northern Canada. Uh, And all the way back in 2006, she was the recipient of a bronze medal in water polo at the Gay Games, which was held in Chicago. Dr. Amelia Merrick is on the show today. Amelia, welcome.
0: Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Dan.
1: Super excited to have you on the show and to dive into... uh, the world of nonprofits and how they engage with will, but I want to I want to just talk about this water polo piece for a second. A, because I've never played water polo in my life. B, I remember initially thinking like this can't be that hard, and then C, having the like the I don't know the the reflection of like it's probably quite challenging and difficult, and I just have zero clue of everything that it entails. The the world of water polo, how intense is it?
0: It is absolutely intense. It is one of the most vigorous physical exercises I've ever done. It's intellectually vigorous. And I will say my team, the Trigger Fish in Toronto, were also socially vigorous as well.
1: Well, and, and maybe that's it. Maybe it's just as much of a social versus physical. I, and maybe I didn't fully appreciate it until I have a two-and-a-half-year-old and so trying to teach him how to swim and things and like trying to chase him around in a pool I was like, "Okay, this I'm exhausted. Like I'm not, I'm not just <laughs> floating here anymore. I'm like scooting back and forth in the water trying to keep him, you know, above it."
0: Uh Yeah, we're not allowed to touch the ground. You're not allowed to touch the ball with both hands. So there's never I mean, you really have to think strategically about how yeah. you're going to rest when you're in the game.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I've completely forgot about the fact that you have to tread water the entire time yeah no no I don't think I will uh take up water polo at this point in my life but I can appreciate it and I appreciate yeah, you having precious, that
0: because you're always taking new folks for trials and they're an amazing team
1: I I just won't put anyone on the team through having to suffer my presence on that so but I appreciate that um so we're talking about you know work integrated learning specifically Nonprofit organizations and how they engage or don't engage with work integrated learning and that could look at a number of of ways and how you know the intensity by which they engage and then on the flip side what are we doing as as practitioners or as institutions to prepare not just our students to work with them but also to prepare the organizations to work with students mm-hmm. so Give, give us a little bit, um, again, for people listening who don't know your kind of story or your, your journey through Will, give us a little bit of your background, why this particular topic really spoke to you and you've spent a, a considerable amount of time uh, in this space.
0: Awesome, great question, Dan. And I will say that work integrated learning in a nonprofit changed the trajectory of my life. I have had a really successful career um, and I, I take it back to my first internship that I did that was funded by the Canadian government in 2000, uh, where I was placed on a small little island in Indonesia, working for wow. a large nonprofit called World Vision. Um, it, it was a one-year internship. and. I Prior to this, I was the first in my family to go to university. I came from a poor working class family, trauma, dysfunction, you name it. And nobody in my family had ever had a professional job before. I was the first one who graduated. I had a Bachelor of Fine Arts. What do you do with a Bachelor of Fine Arts, people said. Um, but my parents had enough gumption to say, you go and study what you want to study. Um, and then following university, uh, the Canadian government had this amazing funded opportunity where I would work for this nonprofit organization and explore my professional identity, explore how I could put theory in practice. And I was incredibly supported. Uh, There was a cohort, there were 12 of us who all went to different countries, but we were all learning together through a work integrated learning framework. Um, And I believe that that work integrated learning experience opened up the doors for me to see how I could pursue my career uh, as a as a woman, um, as a young woman, but it also ex- it created opportunities for me to explore what I wanted to do, what were the sectors and what were the, the areas of interest for me. So I would say, we're, and from there, um, after my internship, I was offered a full-time job. I was offered a job. I had, again, Bachelor of Fine Arts. I had a one-year practical experience doing an internship for this nonprofit organization. I came back to Canada and they were looking for someone with six years of relevant experience and a master's of public health i had one year of experience <laughs> and a bachelor of fine arts and they took the gamble on me and offered me a job and i continued with this organization for 15 years after that wow through my through my career i took on work integrated learning students because i know it is important for the organization and it's important for young people um and so it was very natural when i it, okay PhDs are never natural they're always ambiguous and circuitous but when I finally found this topic that I was going to focus on work integrated learning in the nonprofit sector it absolutely fit because it had changed my life and I know that through Will in the nonprofit sector I had created the opportunity for other young people to change their life too.
1: It's an amazing story you know from where that yeah, where you came from in terms of being first in your family to attend it and then yeah touching on that common topic of what do I do with insert degree name here? Uh, when it, when it isn't explicitly clear, which I don't know that you could say, I mean, yeah, I guess there's a few degrees, you know, okay. Engineering, you likely are going to become an engineer, maybe medical, you're probably going to pursue that. But a lot of the other ones are, can Mm -hmm. be pretty up in the air. Things like fine arts history. Those are kind of the ones where people, you know, it's becoming that running topic of, well, what do you do with this? Um, Which, you know, and, and I'm sure at some point when you were in that program, you were kind of struggling of like, what am I going to do until this opportunity came along? And I remember, you know, my back, like I have a mathematics degree and it was teaching. That was like, that was the thing. And then halfway through, it was like, I don't want to, I don't want to teach. So what do I do with a mathematics degree that I, I didn't care to pursue like, you know, mathematical research, um, this is amazing. So so you do the internship in Indonesia, you come back get, and to the point get about a the senior
0: job. I mean, yeah, should, by all qualifications, by my resume, even though it was a good resume, they should not have yeah. hired me. But they took an investment on me. I mean, through the Canadian government, because the government funded this and they got for 15 years, I was a contributing person in this organization i love this organization yeah. and i rose to be the youngest national director in the organization wow. um youngest female national director so the investment paid yeah. off right the investment of the organization and the investment of the canadian government both paid off
1: well i think it just goes to show that just because a job posting says one thing you know doesn't always mean you should dis- disqualify yourself immediately yeah. cuz things like that are nah, maybe they're a little flexible right so so you have that experience you you spend 15 years and then you decide i'm gonna get involved in post-secondary so that that's when you started at the university of toronto
0: yeah correct yeah
1: so then okay so and and which campus which campus were you i was
0: on the St. George campus i was so uh, it wasn't quite simultaneous i started as the director of the career center career um OK, my title at the end was career, the director of career and experiential learning. But for a while, right. I was just the director of the career exploration and education on the St. George campus. So 60,000 students there. Big and big. then I started my Ph.D. Uh, while I was at U of T.
1: Right. So, yeah, so St. George campus, so right downtown yeah. Toronto. So I think when, you know, when you think about opportunity for students and industry, it's you know one of one of if not the top sought after i think in students minds in terms of where where do i want to study whether it's from a research but also getting engaged with the community um so when you were in that role again i I know now you're you're in north north british columbia and, and the work you did but when you were downtown toronto and you were doing things with career education and experiential learning what what types of things were you seeing i'm assuming like this wasn't co-op like you weren't doing co-op work terms so yeah. when it came to work integrated learning other types of, of experiential and will what what was what was more prominent what were you seeing or what were some really cool things maybe that stuck out
0: well and that's it it was interesting to you know now be in the hub of the world in toronto oh my goodness what an amazing city toronto is and you went outside our doors and the entire world was yeah. right there whether it's like in a companies doing innovation or all of the headquarters for the nonprofits, I think seven out of the nine major nonprofits in Canada, their headquarters are in Toronto. So we had, you know, engineers, creative industries, medical, everything was a stone's throw away, which was just such an exciting place to be. But it was really interesting to me, you know, not talking just about work integrated learning or co-ops. When we had career fairs, I, I would look around and think, oh, well, this is really interesting because we have, you know, the engineering firms, we have the construction firms, we have the finance firms. Yeah. Um, but where are the nonprofits? Nonprofits represent 2.4 million workers in Canada. But I didn't see the nonprofit organizations engaging in, in some of the smaller things like career fairs, let alone work integrated learning uh, or co-op models. There were some really awesome um uh, non-profit partnerships without a doubt the center for community partnerships has some really great um interesting community-based programs research um, work integrated learning but on the whole when you look at the proportion of the investment of post-secondary institutions in nonprofits for career learning or work integrated learning nonprofits were not representing they were not represented um proportionally to their role in canada
1: and this is a bit of a loaded question but why do you think that was
0: oh it's not what i think it's what i know um so nonprofits in canada um they are incredibly stretched within the neoliberal framework in which we currently operate they are incredibly stretched financially they're incredibly stretched in terms of their human resources They have been downloaded with provincial responsibilities over and over again. And so they're expected to do more with less. So they don't have the time to engage with post-secondary institutions. They don't have the money to pay the $200 to get a table at the career fair. They don't have the money to necessarily pay for um, one of their supervisors to take on a work integrated learning student. So they are incredibly stretched and we rarely recognize the strain and the stress that is on our nonprofit um, uh, 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 labor market. On the other hand, there's another really important thing that is absent in the nonprofit world. So if we look at professional associations, regulatory bodies, industry industry actors, Engineering Canada, for instance, there is a huge body that is constantly developing theoretical frameworks, that is constantly developing professional identity, that is uh, protecting the, the engineering labor market. There's a, a federal uh, engineering Canada has a, a national body, there's also provincial bodies, and they have a lot of power to also engage with post-secondaries. The nonprofit world, because of the way Canada has has um, stipulated funding arrangements for nonprofits, there are no social actors, there are no professional bodies or industry bodies that have power to represent nonprofits in the same way. And so, uh, imagine Canada, great organization based in Toronto. Um, when you look at how they are funded, and they're you know nonprofits are doing life-saving work in Canada. Yeah. They're not. They're just. They're not like you know making things that don't matter. They are saving our communities, they're saving lives, they're they're um, contributing to our economy in really profound ways, but they don't have the the apparatus that allows them to convene as a professional body or as industry actors. And so they don't have that vehicle in order to have conversations with post-secondaries in a structured way.
1: So is this where you think, or or you know from the work that you've done why so if we don't have if there's no national structure for them to operate in is it is that why local connections become that much more imperative so because when i and i i share a lot of that sentiment if i just look back to okay niagara they only knew about what was possible what like to engage whether it was with brock or with niagara college because people from those institutions were going into the community trying to say like yeah, it's okay if you can't if you can't pay for a student, we've got other stuff you can do. But be, you mentioned things like time and capacity. The conversation isn't naturally going to come the other way because they have so many things going on and it's those type when I talked about students not not truly understanding the world of it's those types of things because the 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 knee-jerk reaction is, "Well, I'll just hire somebody to do your marketing." Yeah if they could have done that they probably would have by now like there's very smart people running organizations let's think a little bit more outside the box of maybe why can't they hire a full-time person um but yeah so local connections being that much more imperative so okay downtown toronto number of institutions that that uh, non- and again we're talking headquarters so not just like the you know a small branch of a nonprofit chances are okay they're they're connected to some capacity, whether it's with uh, Toronto Metropolitan or George Brown or, or U of T, a lot of options. You now operate in North, North British Columbia. And and I thought, you know, I've, yeah, okay, I have some geographical spatial awareness and I have a, uh, my brother lives in Nelson, British Columbia, which I I appreciated was North. I looked up in a, on a map on Google where Prince George BC is and I was like, yep, nope didn't fully appreciate how far north you are um very different from downtown Toronto very different I imagine in terms of engaging or or getting that that exposure um if if I'm an mPO because of where where you are
0: yeah. And, and I will say, so my campus, I work for the College of New Caledonia, our largest campus is in Prince George, but we have five other satellite campuses that are more north and more rural. And wow. I'll say in those environments, nonprofits are even more important to right. the functioning of our communities because our government structures don't have the means to to effectively operate in our rural communities. So nonprofits are really important, but their ability to connect with us is challenged. I, I actually had a, a project, it was funded through the Business and Higher Education Roundtable to work with nonprofits in our remote areas to see how could we get them connected, even to do virtual will with our students. And the, the challenges that we were up against were surprising. Like we assume that everybody has stable internet connectivity. Yeah. This is nope. Canada. I worked in rural Laos. So I worked in that small little communist country of Laos that's between China, Vietnam, uh, Thailand. And I will say that I had more stable internet in Vientiane than what our, you know, nonprofit partners have in Burnside. Yeah. And so in Canada, we have this vision that we, you know, everybody lives like us in Toronto. Oh, my goodness, was I ever hit for surprise when I came up to Prince George and was like, no you know we've oh my gosh there was this amazing uh uh, the legion in Mackenzie. Mackenzie is like a former forestry town their claim to fame is they have the largest tree crusher in the world this thing is massive and it has (laughs) no purpose anymore it does not work um but the town was built on forestry and the forestry sector has moved on but these people who had built the town love their town they want to stay there they're senior citizens They don't have the services that are required to live as functioning, capable, flourishing adults as senior citizens, so the Legion steps in. And they want to do, so they came to us and they wanted to do um, a work-integrated learning project, a virtual work-integrated learning project with our university and college to help think of how do we stimulate um, the the economy, or how do we help our community, our seniors in our community so they can flourish here. What a great work-integrated learning project but the the complications of the technology for the legion you know i didn't assume that was going to be a problem
1: different things that you know you have to consider doing will where you are versus yeah downtown toronto or southern niagara southern ontario and i can imagine the the extra layer that puts on the students as well that are you know engaging with with these partners and so your your research, uh, your dissertation that you did your PhD on, so you focused on eight eight nonprofit organizations in northern Canada. Um, in doing that, like what? So you mentioned technology, uh, other com other complexities that not just MPOs but northern Canadian MPOs face when it comes to the the will relationship. What what did you discover or or learn while doing that?
0: I would say you know and you kind of tipped on this uh, before is the concentration of the labor market and how Canada has designed our labor market to be concentrated in in particular metropolitan sec- sectors also has challenges for the nonprofit environment. And I'll say one of the things that I learned the most in my research was the labor market is designed We design the labor market. It's different than what it was 10 years ago. It's very different than what it was 50 years ago. But I find that sometimes I enter this environment where I'm like, oh, it is what it is because that's the way it's always been. No, we have designed it. Our systems and our structures and our people have, by design, created the labor market that it is. And our labor market is incredibly concentrated in our metropolitan centers, which means that the relationship between post-secondaries, you know, you mentioned... When i was downtown toronto i had i could walk over to tre T, uh, what um what's it? metropolitan yeah not familiar with the new name yet not used to saying it but you know and we could talk together about how we were going to bring in nonprofits together post-secondaries could sit together and gather around and say hey we want to do and we did that when when i was at uft i worked with then ryerson to say we want to yeah. do more to bring in our nonprofit partners and we could collaborate well because of the remoteness the disparateness it is very hard for post-secondaries to have those conversations those meaningful conversations together to say how can we take advantage of this opportunity so the concentration of the labor market and then the lack of funding or resources Mm -hmm. or profile to be able to address it Um, i would say that was one of the things that that uh, came up for me that was really interesting um Another thing, you know, and I'm kind of jumping here, but another thing that was really interesting to me was understanding so where I live, 15% of our student population, actually 17% of my student population are indigenous and mm-hmm. in the town that I live in, 15% of our community are indigenous. Um we work with 22 First Nations. Wow. Um, in in Prince George. Um what is the relationship between indigenous nonprofit organizations and um, post-secondary institutions. And why do Indigenous nonprofit organizations choose to participate in work-integrated learning? So my study was based in Northern Canada. um, And what I uh, learned from one of the nonprofit organizations in Northern Canada was that they choose to do work-integrated learning because they feel that that's the only way that they're going to properly prepare or it's their best attempt to prepare future professionals to be able to serve indigenous communities in a decolonized way. They felt that the post-secondary institutions were failing. So if they thought about the psychology program, according to the BC regulations for the BC college of social workers, I'm actually, I'm speaking out of turn. One of the regulatory bodies, it's an opt-in program. If you want to learn, how to do um, psychology from a decolonized or a reconciliation okay. or indigenous perspective, it's an opt-in. Well, for most of our northern communities, we have very large indigenous populations. You would think, I would have thought, well, this is mandatory. You need to learn how sure. to do psychology or counseling from an indigenous perspective. It's only an opt-in. Yeah. So, you know, some of the Indigenous organizations told me they're concerned because students are coming out of their their um, professional programs never having been exposed to the the history of colonization in their professional sector. And so they do work integrated learning because they're compensating for the lack of of um, due process within the post-secondaries. That kind of hit hard for me. I was like, oh, isn't post-secondary supposed to be the center of of knowledge and changing our thinking. But these nonprofits who are already completely stretched, you know, they are they are working themselves to the bone. They're saying yeah. we have to do one more thing because the future professionals in our industry are not adequately prepared by our post secondaries.
1: A lot of things I wanna I wanna unpack in that what what type of will or experiential were you seeing with those organizations? I'm just oh, curious.
0: And that's another great question because, you know, you, you go into it. So I, it was only eight nonprofits and I, I, you know, gave them the list. I said, you know, work integrated learning has nine different forms of work integrated learning. Have you ever heard of this? And they were like nine forms. No, no. But then when they started to describe what they did, they did everything under the sun. And wow. they did everything under the sun at the same time so sometimes it would be like a student in a compulsory program next to a student in a voluntary program one student might be paid and one student isn't paid yeah. so you know again this is where i go back to if i think about engineering and what i know about engineering there are some very clearly defined rules about when you go into work integrated learning you can do this you can't do this at this level yeah. you can do this at this level you can do that in the nonprofit sector, we don't have a regulatory body that governs how work integrated learning is structured. And so they're doing absolutely everything. And, and because a lot of it is based on relationships, you know, they want to be good citizens of their community. So they say yes. Yeah. And the structure to help them do, you know, I I really focused on the aspects of theoretical integration. But because they're doing every number of form of work integrated learning, the ability to do theoretical integration well was really, it was limited. And faculty yeah. members typically were not given the resources to compensate for that either.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, that is a, it can be a challenge that pops up and just especially depending on the the size of, of the organization that you're working with. But so I want to come back to the point you made about the way. So those northern and especially indigenous nonprofits seeing why, why they got involved in will. And, and it was almost like an obligation on their point point to educate the students, which I, I think if you, um, if you kind of look out in my view of, of work integrated learning or experiential learning and that relationship that mute, like, I always say that, sh- that should be some part on the the partner to educate the students to some extent on their world, whether it's, the nature of the work they do, or the communities that they serve, and for me, that's always been part of the trade-off of you don't necessarily always have to be paid. Like yeah. I, I know there's there's some people that operate in the space of like no, if it's not paid, it's not will. If it's not paid, I'm not talking about it. Mm-hmm. Hey, you people, you, you you do it, do what you want to do. I'm I'm cool with that. I'm not of the mindset that it always has to be. If there's some type of mutual exchange of of knowledge um or value whatever it might be this one's just super interesting because here's here's a community and that is viewing post-secondary as as i'll use the word failing to some extent to yeah. deliver for the students mm-hmm. and again southern ontario i, I think historic i think we worked with one indigenous um organization that you know that sticks out to me um, that you know really educated the students in that way, again, recently. But if I just bring it back to kind of what I said off the top about the the concept of a nonprofit organization. So, okay, so we're putting students through a four year, well, I'll just take a business degree. There's no course about it. There's no course about mm-hmm. nonprofit organizations, nonprofit leadership, nothing. so really, if if they weren't exposed to working with one, you could hypothetically go through, a business degree not learning about MPOs Mm -hmm. in any in any capacity whatsoever it's it's a bit of an extra like an an extreme scenario but it's it's it could happen so I kind of draw some similarities to what you're hearing from your Indigenous MPOs of like yeah they're going to go through the whole degree and unless we step in in some way that we don't think they're getting it and this is again in a community where I'm assuming the majority of people stay in that community i don't know what the you know the export rate is of people who are kind of
0: population remains stable (laughs) right
1: so if if you're not learning about it and it's such a critical part of the community that you're living in and are going to continue living in then you have to be exposed to it somehow um and it's just it's it's really fascinating that those organizations see their role in that way whether it's it's good or bad Because it's like, well, they feel they have to, but I mean, at least they're, they're still coming to the table to say, hey, we want to be part of this solution. Now, okay, how do you meet us halfway as an institution to, to enable that?
0: And that's where I think, I mean, that's what becomes the interesting question is, you know, I would say it feels like it's not just the post-secondary And this is what I was told. It's not just post-secondaries that are failing at offering this really critical learning. It's also the credentializing body who mandate what students need to learn and what they don't learn. So those two together are complicit. Um, But these organizations are saying we are willing to come to the table and participate. Now, from my research, it's like, okay, so what are we going to do as post-secondaries to help them and enable them to participate in ways that are not stripping their clients of their yeah. resources, right? How are we going to pay for these institutions to participate? How are we going to support them with, you know, making our modules easy and simple and consistent? Like, there's so many things that we could do if only we could acknowledge that the nonprofit context is different than RBC. Yep. Couldn't we then build the the resources, which also includes money, so that they can take on our students, because the learning that is happening, you know, I will say, you could learn about Indigenous counseling practices in a class, but wow, when you can go learn about it in an organization, you're learning about it. I mean, that's where the beauty of Will yeah. is. Work integrated learning, that integration in practice is so powerful, but people need to be resourced in the nonprofit sector, particularly to do it.
1: Timely and interesting. I was on a, a call with somebody else earlier today, and, and they kind of broke down just their own personal um, viewpoint when it comes to work integrated learning or experiential learning. And it's, it's the how versus the what, mm. and I, you know, I think it's just a different way of of framing what a lot of us innately believe. But okay, yeah, the what you do is is learned, and that's the program material, that's the yeah you know, the class stuff that you're absorbing. But how you do it, and and how you actually enable it and enact it, that's where these types of experiences really push students, at least, you know, that's what and I was like, yeah, it, that's a really like simple but interesting way of framing where will starts to kind of become bigger than just about getting a job um or like putting people into labor markets um which i mean it's it's an interesting point so yeah we talked a lot about labor markets centralized in you know big big urban areas and will i think does have a historical connection i mean it's work integrated learning right it's not something some other type of integrated learning so the word work is is tied right into that that term um so okay there's the the conception of it's about getting a job it's about you know figuring out what i want to do is there more to it than that in your opinion is there something missing other than just work and labor markets and...
0: You know, I am unapologetic, and this was a a critical decision I needed to make when I did my research. Was I thinking about work-integrated learning, about it being designed for the labor market? And I'll say I'm a first in the family to go to school. There was an investment made in me. I am unapologetic that work-integrated learning for me was about work. And my research was unapologetically about work. It was about how do we help students be part of decent work. And uh, that was a really huge distinction. It's not just about work. It's about decent work. And when we talk about decent work, what I found is that it's about that reciprocal relationship between labor markets between and and you know like we're calling it a labor market and then yeah. awesome. there's actually a bit of an issue right because a lot of people are like i don't come here just because of of the salary and if i was here for the salary i'd go somewhere else because i'd get paid a whole lot more somewhere else but for me decent work is about there being a reciprocity between yeah. the boss and the staff or between um you know the the industry and the people and so for me, when I talk about work integrated learning, it is fundamentally about decent work where people show up and they can flourish and they can flourish as individual people who have complex lives with competing priorities. And and work integrated learning for me is also about helping the the labor market, the organizations, the businesses, the nonprofits know how to do it better so that we can be flourishing in our work lives because work can be super awesome and i am so fortunate to have a job that i love and i've always had jobs that i love but i know that there's a lot of people who don't have jobs uh, that they flourish in and so i think work integrated learning is about that reciprocity that allows um those who run businesses and those who are going to be future employees to learn start to build that reciprocity
1: in a way you you can I mean i could i can kind of draw a line between decent work and decent will almost and and what i mean by that is you can do a lot of different types of of will experiential learning and i've i've seen this firsthand and just in the projects some projects not great some some work terms not great right and it's i think it's a learning process for the institution for the people that like the practitioners in that space for the students but whether you want to call it quality will or i just like this phrase decent will, because it it's it's those opportunities that do really allow a student to flourish, whether it's on a job or as part of a group working on a project or engaging with a northern indigenous nonprofit organization. what What is it about that experience and why is it a decent experience? Very much like, why is this a decent job? Right? Like there's a lot of similarities, I think, at least for me personally, that I could draw between those two Um, trains of thought um yeah
0: and that's where i will say you know the the framework that i use for my research is called the human development and capabilities approach and it's a fundamental diversion from the human capital theory which so often work integrated learning is based on and our post-secondary structures are based on and in in human development and uh, capabilities approach you know the question becomes how does this work integrated learning or how does this work enable me to be a flourishing human as a person, how does it enable me to flourish as a citizen, a citizen in my profession, but also a citizen in my community and a citizen in my country, and also to contribute as a professional doing the work, like, you know, as a worker. And so, I mean, that's where that distinction of like decent work or decent will is about me being a person as an individual, as a citizen, and also as a worker
1: yeah, and I think that's it it's it, an important thing to keep in mind, um, yeah, again, depending on people listening and their their in-depth knowledge of yeah human capital theory versus human development and capabilities approach. but it's more than just okay, I give them like more education, more tools, and therefore they will be successful and contribute. It goes a bit beyond that, I think, especially when it comes to to will and and maybe it's about broadening the mindset around the experiences that are being offered or, you know, a couple episodes ago talked about this notion of mandatory versus optional will. And, and sometimes the mandatory ones can become a bit static or or stagnant Mm. because it's, well, it's, it's like a well-oiled machine. It just happens. And it's like, you know, we're just going to keep doing it. And the numbers are what they are. And it's very good from a, like an organization standpoint and and I even saw this with the projects we were doing it was like yeah like the way we do them is is fine like it works students mm-hmm. mostly respond well but then it could you kind of get to a moment of like but could we do it differently could we yeah. could it be better yeah. right maybe maybe the numbers dip a little bit but if it's better for everyone involved maybe that's okay yeah. and maybe it's it's having that mindfulness to think a bit beyond just you know that routine type thing. Um, so la- lastly, just from, from everything that you've done um, and like where you've worked, where you live, the research you've done. When it comes to engaging with nonprofit organizations, regardless of where they are, and and work integrated learning, what can or what should practitioners do differently, or or should they think about maybe?
0: Now I and and this sounds a little theoretical and lofty um but I think it's important when we talk about work integrated learning we need to think about the work as part of a labor market and understand the characteristics of that labor market I found before when I was a practitioner that um, Well, I guess I still am a practitioner, but I haven't totally jumped into the work integrated learning in my sector uh, now, which includes professional truck driver training. A total difference from where I was before. Um, But it is important to understand the qualities and the characteristics of that particular labor market. Is it an a regulated labor market or an irregulated labor market? Is it an internal labor market or an external labor market? If you don't know what those terms mean, you should probably find out. I find that we often talk about work integrated learning without having a knowledge of what labor market conditions are. And so for the nonprofit sector, it's it's not a regulated labor market and it's an internal labor market, which means, People are often hired from within the organization, which means transferable skills, the the transferability of skills is weakened. And because it's not regulated, you could get paid $15 an hour at one job in one place and $25 an hour in another place and be expected to do completely different things. So in order for work-integrated learning in the nonprofit sector to be improved, we need to know the conditions of the labor market. And I think we need to also be advocating for students that there is better lay regulation and better decency in the the labor market to which we are sending our students that's one thing i think um and and this again is is lofty it's not really at the practitioners level but to be reaching out and to be working with the imagine canada or you know oftentimes it's uh, the united way um more locally who have that broader um understanding of Uh, uh, or or relationships with the nonprofits in our regions, that I think is really important to look at those broader um, communities so that we are moving forward with more consistency and more Mm. predictability. I think that's really important. And then thirdly, and advocacy, I just keep saying advocacy. I think it's really important. If we are going to partner with the nonprofit sector, we need to be advocates that they get the funding and the resources they need to deliver Um, will for our students, and they are our students, right? So that means, do they have the money that they need in order to supervise? Do they have the computers they need so students can do the work when when they're in those really important um, uh, spaces? Do they have the modules they need so they know how to be a learning partner or to be a supervisor? Um, And, oh, the other thing I would say is for us to constantly be looking at our numbers too, because it is harder work, I will say, to do well in the nonprofit sector that's it is hard at work because the sector has all of these strains about it and so it is much easier and they're not going to be calling us unless we ask them oftentimes they're not going to be calling us rbc calls us why do they call us we can be asking that question why why do certain companies call us and others don't that's something as you know educators we should be asking that question but I would say every institution should have a ratio where they are looking to say, are at least you know, 2.4 million people in Canada work in the nonprofit organizations. If there are more people working in nonprofits than the finance and insurance sector, than forestry, manufacturing, construction, transportation, information and cultural industries, professional, scientific and technical services. So that list right there is all of the co-ops. But nonprofits have more people employed as individual sectors, not together. Right. Nonprofits employs a lot of people, but if we're not seeing that on our list of co-op hosts and on our list of career fair uh, tables and on our list of work-integrated learning partners, that we don't have um, more nonprofits than the finance and insurance sector, we've got questions to ask ourselves.
1: Something's missing. I like that you gave a variety of of things because you know, depending on who you are when you're listening to this, the role that you play at your institution, the, the ability that you have to enact change, there's something there, I think, for everyone, right down to making sure, and, and it seems common sense, but it's not that that people know how to be a will partner. And I've talked about that extensively, almost to exhaustion on this show before, and I probably won't ever stop because it's I, I truly believe in it. And this, this is regardless of, of whether it's, uh public or private company or a nonprofit it it's not an innate
0: 100% trait. agree with you 100% that came out over and over in my research
1: yeah yeah and and so it's but it, it's it's not a, a hard thing to talk about yeah. in terms of what it means to be a good partner a, a supervisor uh, a mentor there's there's a lot of different ways you can spin it um so, you know, whether whether if I look at, at our organization, at CWIL and, and a duty to to play a role in that, maybe, um, but also what can you do locally at your own institutions with the, the partners that you work with to make sure that the opportunities that you're creating together for your students is as decent as they can be. Um, on that, Amelia, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today, uh, morning time out where you are up in Good old northern BC. I, I don't know that I will ever go that north, but hey,
0: it's maybe amazing one, if, up here. Oh my goodness. It's, it's such, it's going to be ski season soon. Well, We've and got, that's what we might got bears get me and there. moose, but also skiing.
1: That, and that might get me
0: there. I want to say Masi Cho. That is the the way to say thank you in Kwaitelytene. Well, in Carriere County, Kwaitelytene uh, is where I live. It's the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Kwaitelytene, a really resilient First Nation. Um, so Masi Cho, thank you for uh, having me on the show and for having CNC on the show.
1: Yeah, so appreciative for you taking the time uh, and sharing not just the the work that you've done in your research, but just you know the passion that you bring to this space and, and keep doing what you're doing. It's it's absolutely amazing. Quick reminder, we've got our, our AGM, Seawall's big AGM. It's back to in-person November 15th at Sheridan College, uh, Mississauga, Ontario. Seawall members, you can register. There's a virtual component uh, as well. Check out our website, Uh, including an opening session with Cynthia Leach, who's Senior Director of Economic Thought Leadership from RBC, but specifically on how international students can help solve Canada's labour crisis which labour we talked about that on this show but uh, check it out seawillcanada.ca events you can register for all of that Seawill members uh, and until next time thanks for listening we'll see you later
0: I won't be back in a year
1: Cause all the fallen leaves, the birds, the breeze, capture me again. And all the lies he tells, someone else sure could use a friend.